This talk was given by John Dido Lori Roshi. Dido Roshi was the founder of Zen Mountain Monastery and the Mountains and Rivers Order and served as the guiding teacher for almost 30 years until his passing in 2009. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Master Dogen's 300 Koan Shobogenzo. Case 12. Dongshan's Going Beyond Buddha. The main case. Zen Master Dongshan said to the assembly, Experience going beyond Buddha and say a word. A monk asked him, What is saying a word? Dongshan said, When you say a word, you don't hear it. The monk said, Do you hear it? Dongshan said, When I'm not speaking, I hear it. The commentary. The great matter of experience, of the experience of going beyond Buddha, is not contained within practice nor attained after enlightenment. It is simply when you speak about it, you cannot hear it. Manifesting outside of patterns and forms, it is not a matter of cause and effect. This is the wisdom that has no teacher. Therefore, it is not contained in either words nor silence, hearing or not hearing. The capping verse. It cannot be described. It cannot be pictured. The beauty of this garden is invisible even to the great sages. The magnitude of this dwelling is so vast, no teaching can stain it. This um, koan is one of several that uh, Dogen used to create the fascicle called uh, Development Beyond Buddha, Butsuko Joji. Um, and um, he used uh, five or six to illustrate the teaching, what it means to go beyond Buddha. And going beyond Buddha, in a sense, is uh, uh, the continuum of practice beyond enlightenment. Says in his uh, fascicle, continuous development beyond Buddha was first used by the great master, Dongshan. Other Buddhas and ancestors have learned this saying from him and then experienced continuous development beyond Buddha. You must clearly understand that continuous development beyond Buddha is not contained within practice nor attained after enlightenment, rather is experienced, and when I speak about it, you cannot hear it. If we do not arrive at the state of continuous development beyond Buddha, we can neither gain nor experience it. Also, if we do not speak about it, it cannot be realized. So this experience of going beyond Buddha, essentially in a word, uh, is not a word. The monk said, when he asked them to say a word, the monk said, what is saying a word? And Dongshan said, when you say a word, you don't hear it. It's very similar to the conversation, if you recall, the 
uh, Tozan's enlightenment under Ungan, where he spoke of the teachings of the insentient, well, before he, uh, the poem, when he was still dialoguing with Ungan and with uh, the teachers that he studied with before Ungan. And he asked, what are the teachings of the insentient? And uh, who hears it? And Ungan says, the insentient hear it. And Tozan said, do you hear it? And he says, no, I don't hear it. If I heard it, you wouldn't hear my teaching. And then Tozan said, in that case, I don't hear it. And Ungan said, if you can't even hear my teaching, how much less are you going to hear the teachings of the insentient? In another case that he quotes in this same fascicle, he says, you should understand Buddha going beyond Buddha. A monk said, what is Buddha going beyond Buddha? Dongshan said, not Buddha. Unman at a later time said, it is unnameable and unshapeable, and so it's called not Buddha. Hogan, or Fayen, said, by skillful means, it is called Buddha. So it's clear that something is going on here that's not quite immediately graspable. In fact, it's not graspable at all. And it, it brings me to the method, the method of Zen. The method of Zen, the method of Zen teaching is something that's totally outside of our experience of education, of learning, of acquiring a skill. It's not like an apprenticeship. It's not like an education. It's not about information. It's not about understanding. It's not about believing. Something else is going on. The fact is the truth cannot be spoken of, nor can it be heard. And it's because of that that the methods of Zen have arisen. And if you don't understand what it's about and how it works, the whole thing could seem silly. It could seem excessive or anal. We're required to do in Zen training things that normally don't happen in any other kind of training. Closest thing that may come to it is maybe training for the Olympics or some sort of you know, uh, physical thing, sport thing that requires the same kind of discipline and so on. There are certain qualities that need to be developed, not even developed, that need to be awakened before people can begin to appreciate, can hear the teaching, can hear it. So, a lot of emphasis is placed on things like punctuality, conscientiousness, self-control, ability to get along with each other in a sangha, cleanliness, work in the kitchen, work in the field, physical labor. Some of the qualities that are looked for in the beginning stages for students is kind of willingness to do these things. Not only willingness, but an enthusiasm, a readiness to do it. 
And what's critical also, that tells so much about a person, is how they treat each other. Not so much how they treat the teacher, as much as how they treat each other. How they treat the inanimate things, like tools. How they go about doing a job. So a lot of attention is given to that in the beginning days of practice, and all kinds of devices are used. Training positions have a lot to do with that. And it seems pretty simple, a training position. You know, you, you just thump on the makukyo and keep time. You know, it's like stomping your foot in a sense, right? The bells, you know, are they're done in a systematic way. Ching, ching, so on. Bonk, bonk, bonk on the han for entry. But it, it's amazing how revealing that all is how much that says about the person. I mean, forget about everybody is going to be uptight and nervous when they're doing it for the first time. That's a given, and it's okay. That's what learning's about. Everybody's going to make mistakes when they're first doing it. That's a given. Making mistakes is part of learning. That's the way we learn. Uh, but I'm talking about after a while. They've got it. They've got it very clearly. And then suddenly one day, the distance between the sounds is crammed together. Boom, boom, boom. Something's going on. Or they don't hear or see the cue. Something's going on. And that something is usually internal dialogue. So it's clear that what's happening on the cushion is reflected directly by how we do the other things, how we do a service position, how we work, how we relate. I have no idea if you're sitting there looking like a Buddha, unless I examine you closely, I don't know what you're doing, what you're, whether you're fantasizing or, or really being with your breath or with the koan. But there are consequences of when you have been with your breath for two hours, three hours, five hours, ten hours, one day, second day, next day. It transforms. There's no place to hide that. It shows in the way you walk, in the way you talk, in the way you relate, how you feel about yourself. Then there reaches a particular point where the real training begins. That begins with awareness. Once you reach a certain point, it's no longer necessary, it should not be any longer necessary, to give specific instructions. Because now, you find out what the story is. In American monasteries, we do a lot of instruction, too much instruction. It's talk, 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 explain, 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 no matter what the thing is. And the reason so much talk and so much explaining is necessary is because our powers of observation are not developed. So the beginning parts of, of training have to do with helping a student just be conscious of how important powers of observation are. That you better 
notice what's going on because whoever is doing whatever they're doing, you're going to be doing sooner or later and get the nuances down. And so you only can teach so much by explanation. There are certain nuances that you get that are not teachable. You, you kind of absorb them. And all of the creatures of the earth have a way of finding out what the fundamental thing is concerning their nature. And usually for most creatures of the earth it has to do with survival. There seems to be certain genes that are present that have to do with how different organisms and different beings, different things survive that is also the wisdom that has no teacher, just like what we're talking about. And in a sense, our spiritual genes are, to me, also survival genes. They have to do with how to live this life as completely human and to be able to survive. The other day I was watching, um, well, a few days ago, I was trying to photograph... um, wood ducks, which are very, very beautiful if you've never seen them. Their faces are almost like as if they were painted. Very colorful. And um, there was a female with seven ducklings. And I saw them a couple of times as they drove through the woods with the jeep. And she would quickly disappear into the, into the bushes. And a couple of times I tried to get out and follow her to see where she was going and uh, it was amazing how her trace completely disappeared along with the ducklings when she where she first went in there were clear traces of where she had entered but she was very skillful in evading me so over a period of days I was very patient waiting for the opportunity to photograph her and the ducklings before they became too old and um, one morning there she was with the seven of them in a little patch of water in a stream on the back road of the environmental site. And I began photographing. She wasn't aware I was there. And um, ducklings were following her. And a little further upstream, there were two males who were sitting on a log. Uh, and then Further downstream was this female with the ducklings. And all of a sudden, she let out a cry, which is a danger signal. And the ducklings shot across that little patch of water into the weeds. And at first, I thought the mother had seen me. Uh, Then she started screeching, the distress call, and flopping over on her side with her wing dangling and flopping on the surface of the water, and suddenly I realized what was going on. There was a mink who just darted out like a shot. And the mother, who clearly was fully equipped to escape a mink, you know, you just fly, minks don't fly. But she was a mother, she wasn't just a duck. She was responding to some basic genes that were part of her protecting the the ducklings. The males, on the other hand, just took off. 
They were gone. They didn't have that responsibility. <laughs> That's what we do, right, guys? <laughs> you know, look good, the males are very colorful, the females uh, blend in with the environment because they have to hide with the ducklings, you know, so that we look good. <laughs> so this was incredible. The whole thing took place in seconds. This mink was like a shot. The mink was beautiful to watch. And from the size of it, I guess that that mink was also a female, and she probably had a den full of babies, too, that wanted to eat, you know. So, I mean, it was, you know, I wasn't on one side or the other. I just admired the hell out of both of them. She kept flopping, and she would let that mink almost get her. Because the thing was, the mink appeared with the seven ducklings who would have been like that. He could have knocked them off one at a time like that. But she was so deliberate in saying, you know, look at me, and I'm helpless, and a bigger meal, and he went right for her. And she would let him get almost to her, and then she would move ahead like that. And he, he had a long, she had a long, beautiful, muscular body that was like, like a shot. She would go over stumps and, and so on, shoot across the water, swim like hell, you know, land or, or water, she, she was right on top of that duck. And off they went, down the stream, I mean, out of sight. They, they were still, she was still on the ground, still flopping, like any minute she was going to pass out or something, until I couldn't even hear her cries anymore. The ducklings had completely disappeared. I mean, these things make noise all the time. They beep, 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 beep. They, that, this, that, that danger signal, into the woods, and they blend in perfectly, and there was not a peep out of them. I mean duck zazen or whatever <laughs> and a couple of minutes later who should appear but mama I mean she led him far enough away that I don't think he even knew his way back <clears throat> and it's kind of interesting you know seeing that and then I and I photographed them for a while she was right back with them checked them all out they all started following they still didn't know I was there I photographed away and I just sat there in deep admiration for the ability to do that, that there was something in them that had to do with how to survive. And I'm sure it's in those ducklings. When they grow up, they'll do, I mean, they'll, if they're males, they'll grow up to be good-looking bums that sit on a log. And if they're females, they'll learn to be good mothers and take care of the ducklings. You know, it's genetic that each one has a thing to do. We've got something to do. And it's genetic. I feel it's genetic. You know, it's a part of the human spirit uh, that can't be spoken of, that can't be taught. It's the teacher. Uh, it's the wisdom that has no teacher. It's already inside of us, but it needs to open up. It needs to begin to function. It doesn't even need to be understood but it needs to come out where it's, where it's working. We have incredible potential as humans. The limits of human consciousness are boundless. There, there are none. We haven't even begun to examine it. We're dealing with something here, a teaching that's inconceivable, unthinkable, un incomprehensible 
And everything that we've learned up until this point tells us to try to grab onto it, tells us to try to intellectualize it, to analyze it, to judge it, to categorize it, to systematize it. And all of that moves us further and further away from the truth. And even when we use special devices like koans that are specifically designed to short-circuit the whole intellectual process, somehow we manage to intellectualize them. Even after people see the koan, realize the koan, are affected and transformed even by the koan, the minute they step back a little bit, they begin to intellectualize it. I hope there are none of you along here that are doing koan study that are taking notes about koan study. That's the best way to kill anything that you've realized, is to write about it, making notes about it. I know a lot of people do that in other sanghas, but it's deadly. It's absolutely deadly. It forces you to intellectualize it. And when you do, what you got is an idea. What you've got are the words and ideas that describe reality. Reality is gone, out the window. Uh, It's not going to help you transform your life that way. We live at a time that it's so much is written about Zen. It's so easy to get philosophical about it. And it's easy to define Zen in terms of all of these ideas that we read about. Well, there's a difference between the apparent and the real. And it's not only true in Zen, it's true in everything. It's true in art. It's true in poetry. It's true with oranges. I remember when I worked uh, in industry, uh, working on uh, uh, analyzing, determining what the components were that were in oranges, that made it orange, made the smell orange. They sent me down to Florida to go to where they were grown, to where they were processed, what they did, went to their laboratories and everything. And I noticed that what they were doing is they were shipping the oranges that they were picking and shipping weren't orange at all. They were green. First I thought they were limes, big limes. They were oranges, but they were green. They weren't ripe. They can't have them ripen on on the tree because then they won't be nice and firm in the way they're supposed to be when they get to the market. Uh, So what they do is they pick them green and they stick them in a car and they put, I think it was formaldehyde or something in it that accelerated the process so that by the time they got to the market, they became green, but they were still firm and still hard. But... One of those that you buy here in Boyceville that comes from Florida, and one of them you pluck off a tree in Florida, the taste is like night and day. Absolutely, totally different. They look like an orange, but it's not an orange. It's some kind of a hybrid. And the same with sculpture. I mean, it's you know possible for an artist to make a piece of sculpture that's a beautiful way of seeing something or someone. But there are also machines that make sculpture. I saw a sculpture that's made uh, by going into just a machine that's just like uh, 
the machine that you go in and get five snapshots for a dollar, you know, when you go in there? You know those machines? Well, they in Japan, they have one that will uh, do the same thing. It photographs you from all sides, and it goes into a computer, and uh, it produces a three-dimensional sculpture that's life-size. Right? I mean, nothing could be its photographic. Couldn't be more identical. Is it real? Is it some kind of an expression? Or is it some kind of a clone? You know, what's the reality? And we can do the same thing with practice. You know, get all of the elements of practice, look good, get a raksu, get a robe, do what's required, and convince yourself that you're really doing it. Well, the truth of the matter is, the only time that you're really doing it is when you're practicing your edge. And everybody knows where their edge is. If there's any doubt, just ask yourself what it is that you're avoiding. When you get the answer, what you're avoiding, you also have the answer, what your edge is. So it's because it's so subtle. It's because it's unspeakable. It's because it's incomprehensible and unthinkable that all of these methods need to be used. They're all skillful means. The koan's a skillful means. The service is skillful means. Doksan. Ultimately, you're not getting anything. You're discovering something. But the process of discovery doesn't take place until certain things happen. And that's what training is about. Things happen. So back to the koan. Experience going beyond Buddha and say a word. I've got some footnotes to this. The first is, for experience, Tozan said to the assembly, experience going beyond Buddha. Footnote says, there is such a thing you know, but only a handful have experienced it. And say a word, footnote to that says, with your throat, mouth, and lips shut, how will you speak? That's what saying a word is about. Saying a word is not an explanation. It's not passing on information. We usually call it a turning word. The word may have absolutely nothing to do with what the experience is that results from it. But it's something that triggers. It's appropriate to the moment and appropriate to the person. The monk says, what is saying a word? Footnote says, from beginning to end, obscure and hard to understand. Impossible to understand. Turning word has no meaning. Turning word doesn't even have any significance outside of the context within which it happened. Turning, turning words appear in koans all the time, and we all hear them, but somehow it's not a turning word for us. Otherwise, everybody would experience the same enlightenment that the koan is talking about. So it's always appropriate to the circumstance, it's always appropriate to the time and the person, the relationship. Dongshan said, when you say a word, you don't hear it. Footnote to that said, when the tip of the tongue obstructs, you do not hear. The monk said, do you hear it? Same question that Dongshan asked his teacher. Footnote to that said, how can one 
get it by accepting another's interpretation. But whether or not he heard it is irrelevant. It has nothing to do with the monk. Dongshan said, when I am not speaking, I hear it. Footnote says, the old master has snatched the monk's ears and made off with his tongue. The commentary says, it's not contained within practice nor attained after enlightenment. But beyond Buddha, Buddha, to realize Buddha is to realize one's Buddha nature. And clearly, beyond Buddha means something that takes place once you've realized your Buddha nature. But here it's saying it's not within practice nor attained after enlightenment. Why would a statement like that be made? Many of you know the statement of Dogen in Genjo Koan, where he talks about practice in terms of when all dharmas are Buddha dharma, there's life and death, Buddhas and creatures, Enlightenment, delusion, practice. And he says, when the Buddha way is beyond being and non-being, therefore there's no Buddha, no creatures, no enlightenment, no delusion, no life, no death. But he doesn't mention practice. He doesn't say no practice. Then he says, however, the Buddha way is beyond being and non-being, therefore there are Buddhas, there are creatures, there is enlightenment, there is delusion, there is life and there is death. Again, no mention of practice. It's because it has nothing to do with practice. It is not contained within practice. It doesn't follow enlightenment. It's not a matter of cause and effect. It's non-dual. That's why it's called the wisdom that has no teacher. That's why it's not contained in either words or silence, neither hearing or not hearing. The remarkable thing about all of this that I'm sure none of you believe is that it's all within the, your capability of realizing it. It's as natural to you as it was for the duck to do what it did. The only difference is the duck didn't have to deal with brainwashing. The duck wasn't programmed. If that duck was taken when it was a duckling or before it was hatched and put in a cage or in a zoo, and then when it was grown and impregnated, put on that pond, it and all the ducklings would be mink food by now because of that conditioning. You know the story of, of uh, Ram Das and Cleary, uh, Leary before they got their heads screwed on sideways when they were working at uh, Harvard. I remember them because I went to their lectures. So they came to the American Chemical Society and I was a scientist at the time. I was fascinated with what they did. What they did is they took a bunch of ducklings and ducklings imprint immediately on whatever the first moving thing is that they see. And they took a group of ducklings, a bunch of them, a lot of them, and they imprinted them normally. So when they cracked out of the egg, they saw another, a duck and they began to imitate the duck and follow the duck. 
And another group of them uh, that imprinted the same way, uh, they, uh, no, another group of them, they imprinted with mechanical ducks. And so they started following these mechanical ducks. And they were so imprinted that when they grew up, they weren't interested in a regular duck. When it was time to mate, they wanted to mate with a mechanical duck. So they didn't know from real ducks. The mechanical duck was their duck. Then what he did, what they did, is they gave them LSD. And while they were tripping, both groups, they took the normal ones and imprinted them with mechanical ducks while they were tripping. They took the mechanical duck ones and imprinted them with normal ones. And it worked, which was pretty remarkable. I mean, these two guys were on their ways to becoming eminent uh, psychologists. I mean, they were brilliant, both of them. So they started playing with their own chemicals and then they got their heads screwed on sideways. Um, so that kind of imprinting, in a sense, is what we're dealing with. Programming. Programmed by our teachers, by our culture, by our nation, by our education, by our religions, by the things we've been told. So we don't know who the hell we are or what our life is. We're just following the crowd. We think that we're like the people that appear on television, you know, in the ads. Oh yeah, that's me. You know? And they think that that's who we are because that's why they make the ads. That's what is going to attract us to those ads. That's all part of the delusion. And what practice is asking you to do is to step outside of that. And somehow, and it's a big deal, Work your way through those layers of conditioning and get to the ground of being. And when you get there, it's a whole different way of living your life, realizing your life. And then there's more. The experience of going beyond Buddha. From that point on, it's you who are the wisdom that has no teacher. And it's as natural to you as the antics of the mink and the duck were to them. It's about our survival. It's about our very being. It's about how to live our lives in accord with the nature of things. It's no small thing. The capping verse. It cannot be described. It cannot be pictured. The beauty of this garden is invisible even to the great sages. The magnitude of this dwelling is so vast, no teaching can stain it. So it's unimaginable what we're talking about. It's indescribable what we're speaking about. It's invisible to even great sages because it's very, very, very personal. It has nothing to do, it has no reference system. It's not a garden that all Buddhas hang out in, it's your garden. Your life. 
your being, your existence. The magnitude of this dwelling is so vast that no teaching can stain it. That's how big it is. It includes everything. That's why there can be no staining. There's no outside for something to come from to stain it. There's no teaching outside of it. It's in this realm that we begin to appreciate the gift of human consciousness in ways that we've never even dreamed of, and clearly in ways that have never been written about or reported about. And all along, it's your life. You're born with it, you go to the grave with it, whether you realize it or not. If you're willing to do it, put yourself on the edge, realize it, transform your life, you get an opportunity to nourish not only yourself, but it's inevitable. You nourish all that you come in touch with, in contact with. So it's not just your life we're speaking of, and yet it's personal. But that personal includes the whole great earth and everything your life touches. So don't think that this is something that has to do with great masters of antiquity or Buddhas. Don't violate the ten grave precept by thinking there's any difference between you and Buddhas and realize for yourself the experience of going beyond Buddha. It's not something that's going to happen later. It's something that can happen now. Take care of it. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about the monastery's programs, weekend retreats, and residency, please visit our website at cmm.org.